Live export is a difficult subject. Some listeners may find this challenging. I'm Colin Klupik. This is 47 Degrees. The Australian Livestock Exporters Council's slogan reads, No fear, no pain. Animal products are an integral part of our society. Is that something we need to think about more than we do? Put more simply, and this is not a vegetarian argument, should we stop and think more frequently about what we're doing in the supermarket? Have I made a connection between this piece of meat on the plastic tray, sealed with cling wrap, and the animal that gave its life for me? Did this animal experience no pain and no fear when it died? What about the animals bound for live export? Do they really experience no pain or fear on their journey and at their destinations? To be completely honest, I don't know. Do you? I wanted to get an ethical perspective on all this. I spoke with Dr Anne Fawcett, who describes herself as a small animal veterinarian, a lecturer in the Sydney School of Veterinary Science, and a diplomat of the European College of Animal Welfare and Behaviour Medicine in Animal Welfare Science, Ethics and Law. I tried to distill that down to being described as an ethicist. Fortunately, Anne was able to simplify that further for me by saying that she was okay with just Anne. Is it true that people would just refer to you as an ethicist? Uh, They usually just call me Anne. (laughs) (laughs) They might say sometimes. Uh, It it depends. Surely if there is killing involved, many ethical questions are raised. How do we start talking about living in a society that consumes animals? And what does it mean to kill humanely? But what we're talking about here is generating money from animals and animal products. How do you begin to talk to people about discussing that idea ethically or ethically generating money from animal products? Well, that's a big question and it's, it, it covers a range of industries. So it's not just live export. We generate money from animal products everywhere. Um, so from laying hens and uh, broiler chickens and um, fish and so on that are wild caught or farmed, we we generate money from from those too. Uh, But in terms of live animal export, I guess we've got lots of guidelines now about uh, protecting the welfare of animals that are transported around Australia. Um, But when you're transporting live animals overseas, their welfare can't really be guaranteed. And we know, with regards to live export, we know that this has been a practice that's been questioned since its inception. In 1985, there was a huge inquiry, and that inquiry concluded that it was pretty difficult to justify the trade on animal welfare grounds. There were a lot of concerns about it. Um, And I would say the recent footage of animals on ships was distressing to all parties. So I'm sure it was as distressing to the exporters as it was to to farmers and animal welfare scientists and consumers and animal rights groups alike. Everyone I've spoken to, no matter what their position is on live export, was really distressed by that footage. Um, But for me, I think the important and undeniable fact was that was evidence of clear failure um, of the exporters to deliver on the Australian Live Export Council's own mission statement, which is um, no fear, no pain. And I think that's really important because the industry acknowledges its social licence is dependent on ensuring the welfare of animals, and it's clearly not doing that. Um, So to delve a little bit deeper, um, the argument used to justify live animal export is really a utilitarian one. So it's really... um, saying that um, this is how we achieve the greatest good for the greatest number of stakeholders. It goes a bit like this. Live animal export is good because um, exporters and Australia benefit financially. Um, The costs to the animals are minimised because 
they reckon they've got good welfare and importers benefit from quality Australian animals that they can slaughter in their own way. So it, it, it meets a market need. But there's evidence challenging every one of those assumptions. I'm not an economist, so my interest is in the animal welfare issues. Um, and it's clear, and anyone seeing that footage would be able to see, that the, the welfare cost to those animals is really, really high. And so those things include things like crowding, um, starvation, suffocation, heat stress, um, poor hygiene, and at, at, when they arrive, poor animal handling and inhumane slaughter. So that, that's a lot of costs to those animals. Mm, but clearly there's, there are opposing sides because if all of those things were so obvious and if everyone thought, well, clearly that goes against all of the guidelines, something's seriously wrong, let's just fix it, as in from, from one day to the next, or we shut it down. So because that's not happening, one would assume that there are people who think, Oh well, it's not so bad. So how do we how do we inject ourselves into that conversation? Yeah, it's always with regards to animal welfare issues, there are often people who will see footage and they'll sort of rationalise it and say, well, that's that's an outlier, that's a bad apple, that, that's an extreme example, uh, but most of the time it's not like that. And that's some, sometimes the response that we hear from industry as well. Um, but I do think that... In the last couple of years, there's been a real significant shift in public sentiment about live animal export. Um, I do think people are more rational about it. So uh, it really was once pitched as an argument um, that was sort of business versus animal welfare. They were mutually exclusive. Uh, and if you cared about business and Australian farmers and jobs and economics, you couldn't raise the animal welfare concerns because that would risk harming other good good Aussie people. Um, but it seems to me that the news reporting and in the general community, there's an acceptance that you now can have grave concerns about animal welfare to the point where you say, we're actually going to draw a line. We don't want to accept this practice. Um, and you can do that without being inherently against industry or even inherently against animal use. Um, I think that's important because animal use is a complex thing. We live in a society that is, like it or not, predicated on animal use. Um, but this is also a society that recognises that animals are sentient beings. So that raises really uncomfortable questions. And I think now the important thing is more than ever before, there's more acknowledgement of this uncomfortableness around the debate. We, we understand that actually um, if we're going to have animals used, we have to accept that there are going to be welfare challenges that need to be addressed. But at the same time, we can still be pro-industry and say, well, actually there are some, some ways of handling animals or ways of treating animals that are just too far that we're not going to accept. Yeah, I just want to come back to that idea that you mentioned about lack of comfort. When it comes to live export, I suppose you could say, and, and you have already mentioned this, that in some cases it might just be that they're the outliers. They're the ones that we see on 60 Minutes. Uh, it's mm. not always like that. And and by the way, they're just animals. And relative to the overall meat industry, the numbers are pretty small. Uh, so what's the problem? Now, it's not what I think. I'm just sort of making this up. But yeah, then, sure. th but then when you see the footage, and you've you've kind of touched on this already, when you see the footage, regardless of which which person you are and, and, and what side of the debate you're on, there is that trigger and there is something that, that happens within us that says that's not right. For example, when someone says, when someone who is, for example, for live export says, oh, that's just an outlier, well, clearly they're saying that that's wrong. They're not saying, oh, no, that's okay. They're saying that's, th that's a small problem. That's so, right. But what I'm curious about is, is there a, a common thread, a common 
ethical reaction, a trigger that's that you, th- in in your opinion, that is amongst all of us that that makes yeah. that happen, and and where does that come from? Well, I, I think it again in the in the um, Australian Live Export Council slogan, "No fear, no pain." That is the common ground. Even the people who are pro-industry are saying fear and pain are not acceptable. And I think that's what's depicted in the footage that's so distressing. I should also point out, I mean, Faisal Ullah, who took the footage, took it over several uh, trips. So it's much harder for anyone to say, well, that's an outlier. Um, You know, this was taken over a long period of time, different vessels, different voyages, different animals. So it's much harder to be rationalised away. I do think as human beings we we can relate to suffering and I think it does drive an empathic response in most people. Um, and for many people, I think that animal suffering is particularly deplorable when it's caused by obviously poor animal husbandry uh, or when it's preventable. And the other thing about that footage in particular I think was triggering for people was the magnitude of suffering. Just everywhere you looked, uh, there were animals in distress. Um, So I think the other thing about the footage is when 60 Minutes aired the footage, they also aired Faisal Ullah talking about his response to what he was seeing. He is a human being who's willing to put his career, potentially his life on the line, um, to speak out for animals to say, and his moral outrage was really clear as well, um, this is not acceptable, it's not okay, it's not how you treat animals. And... The fact that the stakes are really high for him um, was really, really clear. And I think probably people watching that would have also empathised with him and his distress as well. So I think there were were two things really that triggered the reaction from people. And that was the, the empathy for the animals, but also for the human beings in the situation with those animals. How do the vets on board these ships reconcile these two things, looking after the animals but then taking them to their their place of slaughter? I think you can. Um, It's not a unique issue to live export, as you've pointed out. I mean, vets who work with production animals also face this consideration. Um, And it's an expression of a philosophical position that we as humans are entitled to use animals for our purposes if we ensure their welfare um, through th- throughout their lives and if we ensure they have a humane death. Um, so the concept of welfare used to be about freedom from pain and fear and, and just freedom from other negative welfare states. But increasingly, animal welfare means ensuring that animals have lives worth living. That's an expression that's used by the UK's Farm Animal Welfare Council. Like, the aim is to give animals lives worth living. Um And then the question becomes, well, what do we mean by that? And do we really mean it sincerely? And if we do, yeah, what constitutes a life worth living? Um, And that actually, when we think about animal welfare and and providing lives worth living to animals, it often means sacrifice of some kind to humans. So, and that might mean economic investment in in high welfare uh, husbandry or restrictions around the way we can use animals or both. Um, And for many people, animal welfare directly competes with human interests. Um, If you maintain this concept of human exceptionalism, which most human societies do, then you don't really need to reconcile caring for animals and providing good lives um, with the idea of animal slaughter because good welfare is the ethical price that we pay for allowing ourselves 
to, to slaughter animals and to use animals as as we wish. Now, of course, that whole argument falls apart if good welfare isn't provided or if it's not possible to provide. Um, suddenly, we have no grounds on, on that basis for justifying our use of animals to ourselves or each other. I'm curious about this idea of a humane death for animals. I'm, I'm assuming there that we're drawing a link between what we think is a uh, a human-like or a death okay for a human is that is that the link that we're that we're describing here? Gosh, I you know I think that's a long bow. I think. Uh, Why do we use that word then? It's, yeah, it, it's it's a really good question, and probably when we talk about it, there is some degree of anthropomorphism of of thinking what must it be like from the animal's point of view. I guess. What, what it means in practice is we want a death that doesn't involve pain or fear, a death that perhaps an animal doesn't see coming. That would be the perfect humane death because um, up until that time you lead a life worth living which is suddenly ended. Of course, we would call that murder if it were a human um, and we would do that because we'd say, well, you're not doing that in the person's interests and you're thwarting their future interests. But for animals, we don't we don't say that because we sort of argue that well they exist for our purposes so that we can use them. Therefore, we have the right to extinguish them, however humanely, when when we wish to do so. Does does the manner of the death contribute to figuring out what an acceptable rate is? How, how do you even begin to contemplate that? Yeah, that's a really good question. I mean, um, in most animal welfare guidelines. Um, well, many animal welfare guidelines, I should say, um, do incorporate sort of ex acceptable losses. There's a there's a margin of um, loss that sort of is is considered normal or common, and then anything beyond that uh, might trigger an investigation. So the the problem is they're expressed as numbers. Acceptable acceptable losses are expressed as numbers, and that doesn't capture the uh, suffering endured by the animals that comprise those numbers. So if you think um, in terms of live export, mortality investigations are required if it, um, more than 2% of sheep or 1% of cattle on a live export ship, shipment die. So um, if you've got 50,000 sheep, that's 1,000 that would need to die regardless of how they die. Uh, but ethically, I, I do think how they die matters. Um, so because, for example, if you think about it, if, if a lot of sheep are killed during a freak as in totally unexpected unplanned for weather event that no one could possibly predict, um, that's one thing. But if they die because of conditions that are expected, that are likely to occur, then that's not acceptable because um, such deaths and the suffering that preceded them were preventable. And I think we, we'd want to think about them a bit differently. Um, so I, I do think the manner of death is important. At some point, the inevitable question needs to be asked, is this sustainable? Whilst we can wait for the government and industry to make a decision about that, we can also have an opinion ourselves and begin to share that with the wider community. Uh, look, my personal view is that it's not sustainable. I think that it seems that the, the welfare costs to animals to humans and to the environment are significant for essentially uh, little benefit or benefit that is concentrated 
to a small group of of um, producers industry, if if you like. I think that it represents a major conflict of interest for the departments of agriculture to be regulating this but also promoting profitable industry and I, I, I think that really is problematic and there are major issues despite despite a previous ban and a moratorium on live export and, and, and lots of improvements that have been put into place there's still major issues we know we know that transporting animals for any distance is potentially stressful and long distance transport is is much more stressful so I, I really can't see how it can be justified. The concept of a humane death is so complex. I was getting good descriptions, but there was still a sense of unease about it because what is described as a humane death is so difficult to achieve, even in the best of circumstances. It's a bit like wishing that you could just make the animal's consciousness vanish in an instant. I spoke with Dr. Bitter Jones, Chief Scientist for the RSPCA Australia, to tease this out a bit more. And something else I was wrestling with was whether or not it was the scale of live export that was the problem, or the fact that it existed at all. This interview was tricky because we were both out of office at the time, but we made it work. Bitter, people talk about humane death for animals, and I've heard the word humane come up quite a lot, but we are talking about animals. What, what is a humane death for animals? Taking that literally, it, what it means is um, an animal dying without experiencing any pain, suffering or distress. Um, that's actually quite a difficult thing to achieve, um, you know, a death without any of those things. Um, so when, we, when we're usually talking about how we can achieve a humane death, we're talking about the most humane death that can be achieved rather than um, something unattainable. It, humaneness is sort of on a spectrum. Um, so you know, we've got things that are very inhumane and uh, constantly in animal welfare we're striving towards um, the most humane um, solution possible. Do you find that people therefore try to... Um associate some kind of human factor with animal factors i'm just wondering why do we have why do we use a word that 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 relates to humans why don't we have a special word for for animal death mm, no that's a very good point it's probably um in in many ways it isn't the best word but i think i mean it comes from um the humane movement which was all about treating people well um we also talk about euthanasia which um means a good death um, so um, both those words kind of tend to be used interchangeably for people and for and for humans. But the principle is the same. I mean, uh, humans are animals too. So when, what we're really talking about is avoiding suffering. That's interesting. I uh, was talking with Anne Fawcett from Sydney University about that in a different discussion, and she said, well, we are all animals. And I think that's that's a striking thought for most people because we don't often consider ourselves to be animals and therefore perhaps that's why we have this crossover between humans and animals and the word humane death. When it comes to uh, live export, something I think this is a tricky question. Something I'm curious about is when we're trying to think about why why we should or shouldn't do it or why this is the best way or not, not an acceptable way to do it. Are we talking mainly about animal suffering or are we talking about the size of the industry relative to the amount of animals that are slaughtered for human consumption? Where, where mm. exactly is the problem? Well, it's, it's both of those things. Um, so I think that the starting point is 
if you're going to put animals through um, a stressful situation, you need to have a good reason for it. So when we're talking about, about live export, we need to think about why it's done and whether there's an alternative. So um, when you're exporting animals for slaughter, obviously the intention is that at the other end of the journey, um, they're going to be killed. That's why, um, from the point of view, of my point of view and the point of view of the RSPCA, it's an unnecessary thing to do. So you're putting animals through something that is um, going to cause them inevitable suffering because of the length of the journey, the scale of the, the industry and the treatment um, in importing countries when you could just slaughter them in Australia. But there are other reasons why you might be transporting animals and you can do it on a smaller scale um, under better conditions and have relatively good outcomes. But again, the question is, so why are you doing it? If you're exporting animals for breeding, they've got to be alive at the other end. So you haven't got an option of, of um, you know, slaughtering them here and sending them off as, as meat. That's not the point of it. And there's a, there's, there's a lot of animal transport that is done well, um, where animals are treated as individuals um, and cared for well on the journey. And, and there are good outcomes at, at the other end. But what we've got in Australia with the live export industry um, is the complete opposite of that. We've, we've got this mass transportation of animals that's based on, on, on you know, the, the business model says, let's put as many animals as we can on board a vessel. And if some of them die, we can wear that because we're, ma we're making so much money out of the rest of them. Yeah, so the, the animals that go for breeding get the good deal because they're valuable at the other end for other scalable reasons because if they're, if they're used for breeding, they can be used to create more animals at their destination. But it's the, the live export ones that get the raw deal. So as you say, why why I'm curious as to know why does the economic model exist to say it's better for us to export them and have them slaughtered over there? Surely, surely that would just create a whole lot of unnecessary transport cost. Well, it does, but it's built up. I mean, the, the reason why we have the industry we have is, is historical. I mean, it's built up for a number of reasons over time. Um, originally, it was very much that the countries that imported livestock didn't want to have, I mean, they didn't have the facilities to deal with meat. Um, and for religious purposes and traditional purposes, they wanted to have live animals that they could slaughter in their own country, and remember, we're talking to we're, we're talking about countries that don't produce these animals themselves. I mean, when we're exporting um, sheep to the Middle East, we're actually putting sheep into countries where not only do sheep are sheep not reared and, and bred, they shouldn't be because it's not um, you know the climate just isn't um, appropriate for it. So that's the that's the historic reason, but. Right now in 2018, most of those reasons um, have now disappeared. Uh, we've got countries where uh, buying meat in a supermarket is no longer an unusual thing. We've got um, most people having who, who buy, this, buy the meat have access to refrigerators. Um, we've got um, an acceptance that we can do halal um, slaughter in Australia with stunning and that's acceptable to the markets that we're selling into, the Muslim markets that we're selling into. So the, the reasons why it started have gone, um, but um, you, you sort of trace back into the history of the trade. You can see why, why this happened. Um, what's 
uh, I suppose, most surprising is that it hasn't um, ended a long time ago. And I mean, the reason why is because the exporters are um, big money making money making enterprises, and they've they have hung on to it for. Um, for so long. Well, I'm sure that the I'm sure that the alternatives would also be big money making enterprises. I mean, if you think about the uh, scalable shipping of chilled meat, surely someone's got to figure out a, a way of making that into a profitable enterprise. Yeah, and it is, it is because that's already happening at a very large scale. Either going straight um, from Western Australia, for example, going straight in uh, passenger aircraft to uh, the Middle East. That's one of the ways that meat is being exported um, on a daily basis. Um, but I, I, one of the one of the things that has also kept the live industry afloat is this connection with the importing countries and um, tariffs that have advantaged live export over chilled meat. Um, and also, we've got a government here in Australia that has 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 supported that too. In the last week, we've had the Israeli government um, supporting a phase out of live of the import of live animals from Australia. And instead of saying, you know, our government saying, oh, that's a great thing, let's try and uh, negotiate with the Israeli government to transfer that to a chilled meat export market, the, um, Malcolm Turnbull writes to the Israeli government and says, please don't do it. Um, so it's not, it's both, there's a lot of support within government and here and overseas to maintain that live export trade. I've heard that uh, Australian standards of meat production are very high. And in fact, and in fact, sometimes better or often better. Are they really that much better? Well, the one uh, defining sort of difference between, um, if we're talking specifically about the Middle East and Australia, is stunning. So, going back to your first point about the about humane death, um, what the, the the system that we have in Australia is to avoid distress and suffering during the point where an animal is actually killed they are stunned first so that means that they are from that point on completely unconscious and unable to to feel any pain the public perception if i can just jump in there the public perception of stunning might be that they get shot with some kind of a thing is that what we're talking about or is it is it a is an electric shock or is it uh, some kind of a thing that hits them in the head can you describe it okay so for sheep it's it's electrical stunning um, so that's electrodes being applied and an electric shock passing through the animal, which stuns them. For so it's not a physical blow. Um, for cattle, um, then it's either penetrative um, captive bolts stunning or uh, non-penetrative. So it, it, basically, it's still a concussion, either a concussion that can be recovered from or or one that can't. Um, so what's something that permanently damages the brain? So those the, there's, there's a number of different things that stunning means. But in terms of the experience of the animal, when it is done properly, and you know, that's that has to be monitored and audited. Um, and we do have we do have reasonably high standards in Australia. I'm I'm being you know cautious about that because nowhere is perfect. But in terms of our export abattoirs they are continuously audited. So from the point of view of those abattoirs, um, you know, the majority of the time, the majority of animals are not suffering during that um, killing process. 
So I've noticed uh, from an infographic that the RSPCA has released, which I'm looking at here, that the uh, methods of slaughter vary greatly around the world. One that's, um, and I don't want to focus too much on the on the gruesome nature of, of the industry and the gruesome nature of meat production, because I don't think, focusing on that, I don't think is going to help people think about this rationally and objectively. But one thing that did uh, spark my attention was um, inverted slaughter. First of all, what is inverted slaughter and why is that bad? Inverted slaughter is when, so this is, we're, we're just talking about cattle here, is when, um, so um, the, the um, animal walks into a, a restraint box. So that's, that's a, basically a metal box that is designed to um, hold the animal, um, restrain them for the purpose of stunning. That box then rotates so that the, the, the beast is actually upside down um, when they have their throat cut. So we're not talking about an environment where stunning is used. This is, this is not stunning. Um, inverted slaughter is used primarily uh, for kosher slaughter, um, but it's also used in um, a, a number of other countries. It's not, the, it's, it's not, it's not an, a standard method of, of slaughter, but it's a way of restraining an animal that has not been stunned in order to have its throat cut. It's horrendous. I mean, the, 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 the process of rotating that animal, putting them into an incredibly vulnerable position um, is, yeah, it, it, it's, not, um, it's not used in Australia. In fact, it's not allowed to be used in Australia, yet the Australian government has permitted it to be used on Australian animals that go into overseas markets. So let me just get this straight. There's, there are some religious implications of inverting the animal i don't want to get too much into into that detail so that's that's one reason why it happens is is another reason just so that when the when the animal's throat is actually cut that it just drains more easily i mean it seems like a lot of hassle to go to to invert an, an enormous beast because they weigh hundreds of kilos right that seems like a lot of effort to go to 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 do this um yes yeah so i think originally when those restraint boxes were were um developed um, for kosher slaughter, that that um, the blood draining was part of the reason. It's not necessary. Um, it's absolutely not necessary to do that in order for an animal to, to bleed out. There's possibly a perception that beasts aren't particularly intelligent creatures and why would they necessarily find something like that distressing? Are they intelligent enough to realise, oh, my goodness, I'm in trouble, this is awful? Okay, so... Um, cattle are, are, are incredibly intelligent. I mean, it's, a, it's always a mistake for us to think that any of the livestock that we deal with aren't intelligent. They are. They're just different to us. So the way in which they express or, or feel pain, we don't know exactly what that is, but there are lots of different ways that, um, that um, cattle and sheep will tell us that we have learned to interpret and associate through either you know, stress markers or no, other other um, ways of, of measuring um, suffering and stress um, that we know um, are associated with pain. So when when um, an animal's eyes roll back, often in response to pain, we can you know that association has been made, and you can see that in cattle that have been inverted. Um, but putting any animal in a position of vulnerability um, where they have no ability to control. Um, the situation, that will always make them anxious. Um, that will make them distressed. 
and we can measure that in, in a number of different ways. So I, I, I clearly don't want to turn this into a, a vegetarian argument uh, or something similar because quite clearly we, we live in a world uh, where societies are predicated on animal use. How does, the, how does the RSPCA start to communicate its view on this kind of thing to, to the public? How do you, how do you reconcile uh, discussing these incredibly difficult issues like what we've just discussed now, like inverting a beast, then cutting its throat, blood draining everywhere? That's a horrible thought. Yet most of us, most of us are, are, are omnivorous, we'll, we'll eat meat. How, how do you justify and reconcile those two different things how can we talk about animal welfare in that context well precisely because we are talking about animal welfare and not animal rights so what you know an organization like the rspca um our primary job is to improve the welfare of animals right now in as many ways as we can so we are a society that eats meat um that's you know arguably that that is decreasing and that's going to be a great thing for the planet as a whole because there are multiple reasons why we should all eat eat less meat um you know and consume less plastic and all of these you know there's a whole lot of different things that we can do for that and and meat eating is one of those things um but in terms of of what the rspca needs to do we need to deal with the the situation that we are in now as a society and that means that meat production slaughtering animals those two things are, are part and parcel of, of our society so um in rather than um i mean looking to the future and, and where that might be is also something that we need to do but you know every day in australia um hundreds of thousands of animals are being slaughtered uh, so if we can help to make sure that that is done well, if we can help to make sure that when um, when an abattoir isn't doing things well, we can bring that to light. If we can help to make sure that um, the standards are constantly improved, that's what we need to be doing. So I think, you know, there are two aspects. Should we be um, killing animals for our own our own consumption? That's the, that's the ethical question. The practical question is, while that's happening, can we do it better? Indeed, can we do it better? If there is an element of distress or suffering involved, then surely this must be an ever-present question. 47 Degrees is independently produced by Colink Media. Interviews, narration and production by Colin Klupik. Music licensed by Getty Images. To get in touch, send your emails to 47degrees at colinkmedia.com or to post your thoughts and join the conversation, visit facebook.com slash 47 degrees podcast.